The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Conkey Ride Home for Wednesday, December 1st, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, why does Duolingo use such weird and sometimes deeply relatable phrases to teach its users new languages? Plus, the real science behind the much-hyped first living robots that can now reproduce. And the origins of the 12 days of Christmas. Like, the actual days, not the song about turtle doves. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. One of my favorite Eddie Izzard bits is the repeated joke, La Sange est sur la branche. The monkey is on the branch. Izzard describes it as an example of one of the first sentences you learn when you're learning French and how it is oh so helpful and so easy to fit into everyday conversation. Ah uh, oui, ça va. Où est la métro? Merci, merci. Où fait La Sange est sur la branche? C'est vrai. So many of the phrases we learn when learning foreign languages are nonsensical and quite unhelpful, at least if your immediate goal is navigating a new location or conversing with a local. But Duolingo, the popular language learning app, takes the weird to a whole other level. Regular users will know what I'm talking about. Many have taken to social media to share these sometimes absurd and sometimes too real sentences. There's even dedicated Tumblr and Twitter accounts compiling submissions. In a recent Slate article digging into the origins and reasoning behind Duolingo's strange phrases, Jane C. Hu shared some standout examples. There's, the bride is a woman and the groom is a hedgehog. And, the man eats ice cream with mustard. But also, this year I cannot celebrate Chinese New Year with my family. And, today I will gaze into the distance and cry as well. And, my favorite, I am eating bread and crying on the floor. Where are these sentences coming from? How are they so off the wall and at the same time so relevant? Who spoke to several people at Duolingo to figure it out? The first reason for the weird sentences is the same reason so many of our teachers and textbooks over the years did the same thing, albeit in a less funny way. They help us learn better. Cindy Blanco, a learning scientist at Duolingo, explained to Who that mismatches in what we expect and what we actually encounter can help us retain information better. Quote, when there's a conflict between your expectation and the reality that triggers responses in the brain, it forces you to attend more carefully to what you're seeing, end quote. So the example of the man eating ice cream with mustard, you might have been expecting the sentence to end with chocolate syrup or whipped cream, but nope, mustard. Unexpected and pretty gross. You had to do a double take and you'll probably remember it because it caused you to give it extra attention. This strategy is based in part on research conducted at Ghent University in Belgium and published in 2018 by psychology professor and probably the only person working with languages who has never heard of Duolingo, Tom Vergutz. He told Who that this approach from Duolingo holds up with his findings, quoting Slate, Vergutz's paper studied what researchers in the field call reward prediction errors, the concept that learning happens when you encounter an unexpected outcome. 
There's plenty of evidence that surprise helps rats or primates passively learn things like how to get a treat, but Vergutz and his colleagues wanted to see whether reward prediction errors could improve humans' ability to learn something intentionally, like new vocabulary. To do so, the researchers taught Dutch speakers Swahili vocabulary in a method Duolingo users might recognize. A computer program would show a Dutch word and then provide either one, two, or four Swahili words for the user to select as the correct translation. Since these Dutch speakers didn't know Swahili, each selection was essentially a guess, and after each guess, the participant got feedback on whether they guessed correctly. Once participants ran through the program, they were tested on their recall of the correct words. And it turned out that people who had been given four options actually performed better on the final test. Vergutz concluded that this was because when those people guessed the correct answer out of four options, they were more surprised than those who chose from two options, and participants who only had one option had zero surprise at all. You can only learn by making a prediction, says Vergutz, and when given four options, it's more unexpected that you will have chosen the right match. That unexpected outcome, i.e. a reward prediction error, is more surprising and might serve as a type of reward that drives stronger learning. End quote. Vergutz further says that humor could be a sort of weak prediction error. It can't be completely nonsensical, he says. It has to be based in some reason and reality for the unexpected bit to be, well, unexpected. You know, when something is totally absurdist, you're already primed to expect anything. While there's a surprising dearth of scientific research on the connections between humor and learning, mostly because, as linguist Nicole Holliday told Who, funny things are not universal, so it's tough to study, for anyone that does find Duolingo or any other lesson funny, they're probably more likely to return to it consistently because the humor helps them have an enjoyable experience. And Duolingo might know what they're doing on another level. When their sentences are so ridiculous that people screenshot them and post them on social media, well, obviously that helps grow their brand awareness, but it also helps people learn even more through repetition. But also, Blanco, that learning scientist at Duolingo, adds that the weird or highly relatable phrases are also their teams having a bit of fun. The exact type of humor and subtle references vary by language, because each language has its own internal team, and those teams develop their own personality together. For example, she told Who, Norwegian and Swedish lessons tend to have a lot of references to 90s grunge music. And a post on Twitter makes it seem like the Vietnamese team might be big fans of Les Miserables. Honestly, it's pretty refreshing to remember that there are actual people behind the lessons, coming up with phrases that they think are funny or cool or important. And, like who concluded, quote, Let's be real. Given the state of the world, it might be worth knowing how to say, I am eating bread and crying on the floor in multiple languages. End quote. Scientists have created the world's very first living robots that can reproduce. Except not really. As Ars Technica describes it, quote, This is a case when something genuinely interesting is going on, but both the scientists and some of the coverage of the developments are promoting it as far more than it actually is. End quote. Yeah, so what's really going on is that a team of scientists have found that synthetic life forms made from clusters of frog cells can replicate in a way previously unseen in plants and animals. So it is cool, but there are a ton of caveats behind the headlines you've likely seen today. 
So first, this work builds off experiments done by the same team last year when they created what they call Xenobots, which they say are the world's first robots constructed entirely out of living cells. The Xenobots are made from stem cells from embryonic African clawed frogs. Joshua Bongard, a computer scientist from the University of Vermont and co-author of the two papers, described them last year as, quote, "...neither a traditional robot nor a known species of animal. It's a new class of artifact, a living, programmable organism." End quote. The Guardian describes Xenobots as, quote, "...having no digestive system or neurons and naturally falling apart after about two weeks." They definitely do not grow into frogs. They actually keep the form that we impose on them, and they look and act in ways very different from normal frogs, Bongard said. One of those ways is the production of offspring. Anything that makes a copy of itself can be said to replicate, Bongard noted. But plants and animals have previously been found to do this by reproduction, mechanisms that range from the asexual process of budding to giving birth. Writing in the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences, Bongard and colleagues report that xenobots take a very different approach called kinematic self-replication, a process previously seen for molecules but not organisms, end quote. Ars Technica points out that there are two important characteristics of these cells. One is that they stick or cluster together, and second is that they self-organize using their cilia in concert with one another to sort of move around in the culture they're placed in. For this experiment, the researchers incubated the cells in saline solution, and over time, some of them adhered together into a sort of spheroid and used their cilia to move around. Quoting Science Alert, when a dozen of the first-generation organisms were dropped into a second dish along with disassociated stem cells, the movement of the organisms clumped the stem cells into piles that formed a new generation of organisms, which then proceeded to repeat the same behavior of stacking up cells into heaps. However, the same disassociated stem cells left alone in solution did not self-assemble, showing they needed the initial movement of the progenitor xenobots to trigger their formation into aggregated organisms. That this kinematic self-replication could arise without genetic modification demonstrates how radically biological entities can adapt and change in response to their environment, the researchers explained in their paper, end quote. But, as Ars Technica points out, the second generation of cells were smaller and traced a smaller circle. They explained that you could really only go two generations before the process stalled out, unless the scientists step in. The team used an evolutionary algorithm and modeling to figure out the optimal shape the cells should be in in order to perform most effectively. The winning shape turned out to be a half-toroid, or kind of a crescent shape. Science Alert says they look like Pac-Man. Viewing the videos in some of the articles, I say they look more like fried shrimp rolling around in some sesame seeds, but maybe I'm just hungry. Anyways, with this more optimal shape, the cells could replicate for three more generations before stalling out which is cool, but as Ars Technica points out, this isn't completely self-replicating, since it required surgical intervention by the researchers in order for it to happen. Sure, they didn't alter the genes, but they also didn't completely stand back. Quoting further from Ars, once freed by their algorithm from needing to use actual cells, the researchers went off in a weird direction. They imagined a situation where an incomplete electronic circuit is sitting in a culture dish with a bunch of wires that could connect things into a useful circuit. Their modeling shows that mobile balls of cells, or MBCs, moving at random can occasionally bump the wires into a functioning circuit, and having replicating MBCs increases this possibility. The researchers then use this claim that their MBCs are performing useful work as a side effect of 
of replication and call the incomplete circuitry a use case worthy of investigation, which again seems like hyping some things randomly bumping into carefully pre-supplied components, end quote. While some, like those at ours, are not convinced, other scientists are hailing the research, like Mark Myodownik, the director of Institute of Making at University College London, who told The Guardian it was, quote, amazing science and another step closer to animate materials, end quote. It's the 1st of December, which means we are going to start seeing a ton of TV channels and media outlets running series like The 25 Days of Christmas or The 12 Days of Christmas, which, well, guilty as charged, I am actually doing a countdown to Christmas series of short-form videos on TikTok, Reels, and YouTube Shorts, so check that out at the link in the show notes after it goes live later today if you want a minute of Christmas cheer every day. But, as many of you probably know, the 12 days of Christmas are not a countdown to Christmas, but rather start with Christmas as, well, the first day of Christmas. But how that tradition began is kind of interesting, and bear with me here because it gets a bit religious, but think of it more as history than religion if you need to. So December 25th, as you've probably also heard, was not really the birth of Jesus Christ, most likely. There's no one definitive answer for which day he would have been born. Maybe it was March 25th, maybe it was May 20th, maybe November 18th. Lots of different scholars and theologians have come up with different answers over the centuries. One of the few hints from the Gospels is that in Luke, it's noted that shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks by night, something they did every season of the year except winter. So, not a strong argument for December 25th there. But at least as early as the mid-300s, the Roman Church was observing Jesus Christ's birthday on December 25th. Though I should note that early Christians didn't think much of birthdays. For saints, they usually celebrated their death days, the dates on which they were martyred. So the feast days held in celebration were always on the days they died, not when they were born. So it's a little curious that for Jesus, they would celebrate his birthday. And in fact, in the Eastern Church, dating back a bit earlier, there were celebrations instead for Epiphany Day, which was celebrated then as now on either January 5th or 6th. The point of Epiphany Day varied greatly. The main concept is to honor Jesus manifesting as the Son of God, but when exactly in his life that happened is up to interpretation. Some put it as when he was baptized, others when he was born, still others when he performed certain miracles, or the appearance of the Magi or the wise men who confirmed Jesus' importance to the world. The date may also have been picked because it lined up with a pre-Christian Egyptian celebration. As part of their crusading and colonizing, the Christian church would commonly try to combine aspects of their religious observances with existing ones from the community they were attempting to convert. That's never the whole story on a holiday's origins, but it's often an important element. In any case, despite different interpretations, after a while, Epiphany Day on January 6th was pretty well established in the Eastern Church. But as Christianity continued to spread, some in the Eastern Church began to additionally celebrate Christmas on December 25th, and those in the Western Church additionally celebrated Epiphany Day on the 6th. In 567, it was decided at the Council of Tours that everyone would officially celebrate both and Every day in between the two would also be days of celebration. From the 25th to the 6th is 12 days. So, the 12 days of Christmas. And Epiphany Day, additionally, becomes known as the 12th night. 
So while Christmas may actually be the start of the 12 days of Christmas, there is still a countdown to Christmas. It's called Advent. The point of Advent is preparing for Christmas. And just like Christmas, you can celebrate it as religiously or not religiously as you want. You can light candles and read scripture, or you can pop a piece of chocolate out of a dollar store calendar into your mouth, or even get a beer a day Advent calendar from Costco. As professor of religious studies and author of Christmas, A Candid History, from which I got most of the info for this segment, Bruce David Forbes repeatedly points out, Christmas and all of its associations, the trees, the gifts, the music, have gone back and forth between being religious celebrations to some people and not to others pretty much since its inception, and before, really. Christmas being about secular, good food, and good cheer has just as long, if not longer, a tradition as Christmas being about Jesus Christ. And anything with this long and multifaceted a history is bound to be fascinating. I'm kind of obsessed with learning about certain holidays, and also happen to have grown up in the Christmas capital of Texas, so forgive my enthusiasm here, I will try to rein it in and not go too overboard this month, but hopefully you find some of it just as intriguing as I do. Well, that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.